Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. We sit down with Dr. Danny Eckert, who is among the world's leading experts in sleep apnea. He also happens to be James's cousin. A bit about Danny. The Associate Professor has been actively involved in human sleep and respiratory physiology research since 2001. In 2006, he completed his PhD at the University of Adelaide. After three years of postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School, he was promoted to faculty as Assistant Professor. In late 2011, Danny returned to Australia to establish a comprehensive sleep and respiratory physiology research program at Neuroscience Research Australia. His team continues to advance knowledge into the causes of sleep apnea and develop new treatments. He currently serves on the board of the Australasian Sleep Association, the peak profession body, and is chair of the research committee. We talked to Danny about the dramatic impact of sleep on your performance and life. He says sleep apnea is as common as asthma and diabetes, but the dangers are not nearly as widely recognised. In fact, sleep in general is misunderstood by many, and lack of sleep is often glorified in business. Danny says this is just crazy, and describes in detail the horrifying physical and mental impact. After listening to this, you'll be aiming for eight hours shut-eye tonight. Danny's personal story is inspiring. He talks about life in Adelaide, dealing with the loss of his mum, his journey to the famed Harvard University, and his current role as Principal Research Fellow at Neuroscience Research Australia in Sydney. Enjoy our chat. Danny, welcome to Rooster Radio. Thanks, James. Good to be here. Now, I'm going to kick off with a science-based question. You're the first scientist we've had on our podcast, and I'd like for you to explain to our audience what exactly it is that you do. Well, most days I get up and I go to work and I put on a lab coat and I play with test tubes and, and, uh, and, and do things that you'd, you'd see as a scientist on, on television. I feel like you're simplifying it, Danny. <laughs> well, well <laughs> it, it's, it's completely false. I don't do any of that stuff. I don't have a lab coat. I, uh, uh, you know, I have a team of, of uh, 15 or 20 dedicated people and, uh, you know, we, uh, we do all sorts of things. We... Uh, we, we think about the science and the, and, and the questions that drive us in, a, in, a, in our work. But, you know, I travel a lot. I give talks. I'm, you know, you, you have to be many, many things to be a successful scientist uh, these days. So let's strip it right back to this, the field that you are practicing in. And, and what is it that you are um, currently researching? So my lab is dedicated to figuring out why people get sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is a very common disorder. Over a million Australian adults have obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, and it's where the area, the throat area closes again and again throughout the night uh, and stops people's breathing. It's about as common as asthma and diabetes. And as you can imagine, if you're not getting enough air through the airway during the night, you wake up feeling pretty terrible and it um, has all sorts of consequences. It affects every single organ in the body. And, uh, uh, and you know, next day people are sleepy, they're irritable, seven or eight times more likely to crash their car. And, and you know, it just affects every aspect of their life. Is this something that um, we all have to a degree or is it something that... Um people with sleep apnea have and those who don't have sleep apnea don't have any obstructions uh, during the night? Look, it, it is a spectrum. So um, 
there are some uh, predispositions. So some people are more vulnerable to having sleep apnea than others. And really, that's what my lab's dedicated to, to figuring out is, you know, why do people get sleep apnea on an individual basis? And then can we develop new, new therapies? Um, but yeah, we, there's all things that we can do. You know, you have a few too many drinks, uh, you know, you might start snoring. And that's, you know, the start of, of, of sleep apnea, if you like. So tell us a little bit more about the impact of it. You touched on it just before, but maybe just take us through in a bit more detail the impact of sleep apnea. So I guess, you know, to think about your, your typical scenario, a, a typical patient, if you like, and as I'll talk about a bit later, is, um, you know, we now understand that there's, there's a, it's a complex disorder. People get it for different reasons, but you, your, your standard person with sleep apnea will be a, a, an overweight man, middle-aged, um, you know, sitting on the couch watching TV, can't stay awake, you know, really, you know, falling asleep uh, at unexpected times uh, because they're just terribly sleepy. They go off to sleep, might start snoring a little bit, the throat closes uh, and, they, and they literally stop breathing. So they're still trying to get air through the throat area, but it, the, the muscles around the throat have relaxed and they can't get that air through. So they, they're effectively choking again and again throughout the night. Uh, their oxygen levels are going down. It's creating stress on the heart as they're not getting that air to breathe. And then all of a sudden, they'll take a big gasp of air, open up the airway and wake up. Now, they're not aware that they're waking up, but this can happen 100 times or more per hour. Um, so you can imagine, you know, this, mm. is, this is supposed to be a restful phase of, uh, of your day and uh, this is going on up to 100 times per hour. And, uh, you know, as you can imagine, it's also distressing for the bed partner if... Uh, so is that a telephone or is that a... Um, it's, it's probably the lab knocking calling. On that door. Okay. I, I might have to just okay. see if things are okay. So currently, Danny is just getting up. No, it's been looked after. Look, we have... Bruce Radio is a very raw, flowing conversation. We have actually been evacuated from our building during yeah, a Bruce episode. That was Josh Baker, was yeah. it? Yeah. Um, before we were rudely interrupted, you were just talking about how many times in an, in, in a, in an hour you might wake up and then and what that means for the individual well yeah that's right so it 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 does uh we've all had a night where you've not got enough sleep next day you know we we know how we feel your amygdala your sort of reasoning part of your brain is 60 more percent more reactive if you don't get enough sleep the night before if you uh you know if you if you're completely sleep deprived for a night so you miss a night's sleep uh, and you do a simple reaction time functioning task, you're, you're performing as though you're point 0.1. So you, you are intoxicated, basically. So you can imagine uh, how that would affect every aspect of your, of your life. And uh, we now know health-wise that uh, the stress that the sleep apnea places on the body, it affects the heart, it affects your, your blood glucose levels, so you, the metabolic system. Uh, it, it also is linked with cancer, so you're more likely to have cancer, you're more likely to die early. All these things are associated with untreated sleep apnea, uh, and as well as the direct sort of safety consequences of being uh, tired all day, you're more likely to crash your car, you're more likely to have an injury at work. Um, so it's a huge problem. I mean, it costs Australia over $5 billion a year wow. uh, in, in costs. So tell us a bit more about the compound effects then of... Obviously, sleep apnea is one thing, but even people who might just have poor sleep habits or just poor sleep, one night is bad, a couple of nights is pretty bad. But what about ongoing? What's the physical impact? 
Look, I know a lot of your audience is high performance and uh, and looking at a lot of these aspects. I mean, to me, it's it's as you know, I'm an advocate for for, for good sleep health in general. But it's 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 amazing to me that society doesn't place you know good sleep health or good sleep hygiene as we call it as a priority. I mean, it's one of the modifiable things that you can do to, to change your life. Um, it's up there with, it's with the three pillars of health. You know, sleep exercise and diet they're, they're the three things that can really you know be game changers in, in in health so just to give you some some numbers for your sort of high performance uh, 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 listeners if you restrict and particularly for the guys here if you restrict your sleep for five hours a night for a week uh, you take a, a typical university student 20 year old put them in the lab give them only five hours a night for one week you measure their testosterone levels at the start and at the end of that week, it's as though they've aged over a decade. So their testosterone levels have gone, th- you know, they've, they've plummeted. Now, you might argue that, you know, society would be better off if, uh, <laughs> if, if that were the case. But, um, you know, from a sports performance point of view, that is, uh, you know, that's astonishing. Um, so, you know, that's just one. Another example, if you measure your blood glucose levels doing that same five hours a night restriction uh, for one week, you are, again, a healthy individual, put them in the lab for that period of time, you are now pre-diabetic if you measure their blood levels just after that one week uh, of restricted sleep. And yeah, I mentioned those other numbers, you know, 18 hours sleep deprivation, you're, you're 0.05, 24, you're 0.1. So what is going on with the body during a healthy sleep time that is so positive? What is, what are, what is the body doing when it's sleeping? I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, it's the fundamental philosophical question, why do we sleep? You know, we don't have a good answer for that. We know it's restorative. We know that we need it. Um, But if you um, ask directly, you know, all the things that go on incredibly, it's it's important for memory and learning. So you're consolidating memories throughout the day, you know, building synapses and, and getting rid of others that are unnecessary. Your hormones, certain growth hormone, for example, is only released during uh, what we call slow wave sleep or, or a deep sleep uh, phase. A lot of the memory and learning occurs during the uh, the dreaming phase. So, you know, it's, it's a fascinating state. I mean, if you look at the brain waves while someone's dreaming, you can't tell just looking at the brain waves whether they're awake or asleep. It looks like they're awake. So, I mean, it's, it's this idea that you're in this sort of comatose state um, is, is, is really not the case. You know, even a healthy person uh, without sleep apnea, uh, a young person will actually wake up 15 times per hour. That's normal. Um, very small awakenings, five or 10 seconds at a time. You're not aware of these. So it's a really dynamic, versatile state, but, you know, we, we we need it. We know that much. Yeah. You mentioned that um, you're somewhat surprised that people still just don't rate the importance of sleep as much as they should. In terms of your role outside of the science of it, I'd imagine there's a, a big PR element, but also funding. Can you tell yeah. us about what what you need to do outside of the science? Absolutely. So I'm I'm uh, on the board of the Australasian Sleep Association. It's the peak body for for sleep scientists and and, and sleep professionals, and uh, we do a lot of work on advocacy and you know trying to change people's perception. I think there is a perception out there in the community that you know it's um, a form of public prayer. Oh, you know, I only I only slept five hours it's last night, and you know it's it is it's glorified and. Um, 
to us, that's just crazy. I mean, we, we look at the data, we know what this does. You know, you're more likely to be obese if you don't sleep enough. Um, and we know that you die earlier if you sleep less than six hours a night on average. Uh, these are all, you know, astonishing, unquestionable pieces of data, you know, collecting over thousands of, of people now. So it is, it is um, strange. I mean, we live in a 24-hour society. We've got these devices that we, uh, uh, you know, emit blue light that resets our body clock when we're, we're looking at our phones in bed, uh, you know, prior to going to sleep. There's all sorts, you know, uh, almost 20% of the Australian population are shift workers, so working at different times, which we know is puts a stress and a strain on the body and the, and, and the sleep system. So there's a lot of things to stop us from 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 optimizing sleep but i but i do wonder if not everyone actually appreciates the extent to which um your body is under stress and uh you know it's affecting every uh, uh, element of your life if you're not prioritizing that sleep we, i'm going to drill down on i guess the specifics of of sleep apnea and, and i guess the research that you've been involved in in your time at harvard so we're actually going to do a bit of a backstory but if you were going to describe your role in a, either a, in a CEO or leadership capacity, you mentioned you've got 15 to 20 people working for you. You're responsible for, for bringing in funding and pitching to, uh, to various groups and, and organisations. Can you, you know, can you describe the pillars of what's involved in heading up a, a clinic, a research clinic? To, to be a successful scientist these days, and I guess that touches upon the question that you were just asking, you know, yes, in that advocacy role I do. I go to Canberra, I meet with politicians, I tell them about the importance of these uh, sleep things. But to keep my group going and to be a successful scientist, you have to be able to communicate your research. In a, uh, you know, we, we are funded by the taxpayer. That's our primary source. Now, you can also collaborate and work with industry and that can, can supplement the, uh, the work that you do. But most scientists... Um, in its purest form, I guess, are, are funded by the taxpayer. So there's a huge element to being able to um, not only do high-quality work that's going to be internationally recognised by your peers and, uh, uh, and move the field forward and actually translate into to new uh, treatments and, and, and actually help people, um, but you need to be able to communicate that. I need to be able to... I, I need to write grants. I write a lot of grants, and that's how I fund my team. So it means every January and February I spend not, you know, out playing cricket outside with the family in the sun. I spend weekends writing grants so that I can keep my team going. And uh, it's a it's it's a it's a challenging cycle. You know, these are three to five year grants that we write, um, and it's it's highly competitive. So what's what's in a grant? So. For like how our, you pitch, how so you pitch our, yeah. what you do. So our primary funding source, the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, or in America it was the National Institutes of Health, we write a 10-page uh, a proposal. It's t basically laying out what you're going to do for the next three to five years. Um, and it's it's your pitch, if you like. you know, and It's your business plan, if, if, if you want to put it that way. So you do have to put – then there's all these supporting documents that say, look, here's the budget – You've got to get a team of people together that are dedicated to working on this project. You've got to say exactly what you're going to do. You're going to say why it's important and you've got to say how much it's going to cost. Uh, and you've got to convince people that, yes, this is important, but you are the right people to do it. You are the best people in the world to get this done. And that's what we do year in, year out. And, uh, uh, you know, we do this 
multiple times. So you put your grants in January, February, March, you get them ready, you submit them in March, and you find out in October whether you're going to be funded or not for the next year. So it's a, it's a, it's a tricky cycle. My team's lives are relying on me getting these grants. I was going to ask, how many grants would you write and then how many grants would typically come through? Look, the, the I mean, I can tell you the hard numbers. You know, when I uh, returned from, from Boston uh, almost five years ago now, the success rates for our main grant cycle was 20, 25%. So it was, you know, one in four. You, you know, you put all this work in and it's literally, you know, one or two months work per grant. Um, it's now down to 10 to 15% in that short time. So, you know, the, the, the community is, is, uh, is feeling it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is challenging times for, for science and, and medical research in, in general. So, um, you know, there's, there's the hard numbers. And typically, what are some ballpark numbers um, to A, set up a clinic like you've done and B, to keep that clinic running? So to build my lab, I have a, a three-bed sleep lab, um, you know, dedicated to uh, uh, trying to figure out why people get sleep apnea and come up with new therapies. And uh, that was a million bucks to, to, to start that. You know, that's for the build and the fit-out of the equipment. Uh, so that's something, you know, when I came to, to Neuroscience Research Australia, where I, where I work, um, the building wasn't actually built. So this was all planned from scratch. I had hundreds of meetings to get this right with all sorts of consultants. Um, but, but the good part of that was, you know, we built a fantastic state-of-the-art facility that does exactly what we need it to do. Um, so that's, that's the, the actual fundamental. And then, I, you know, I started from scratch. I built my team to where it is today from, from getting these grants. And you asked how many I put in, you know, this latest round, I put in five um, plus two fellowships, which actually supports my, fellowship, my funding as well. So it's... Uh, so you've, you've built the facility, you've got a, a great team. Can you tell us perhaps some of the achievements or um, some of the findings that your work and your team has been able to do? So, so I guess some of the biggest things, when I started with sleep apnea, we just thought it was because people were overweight and they had um, you know, a narrow throat area and when they go off to sleep, the muscles relax around the throat and this is what causes their sleep apnea. And I guess the work that I've done and with my collaborators has really been figuring out it's much more complicated than that. Thin, young people get sleep apnea, you know, women get it as well. And they, we've identified four main reasons. Yes, the anatomy or having a, um, a, a narrow throat area is, is one and, and, and the primary cause. But some people, they just wake up a little bit too easily. Uh, and, and so that has been one line. And in understanding why people get it, that now allows us to target in with these new therapies. So we... You know, my work has really identified these new causes and then we've gone after them on an individual basis and said, right, you get your sleep apnea because, right, you wake up a little bit too easy, your airway is a little bit too, too narrow and your muscles don't work quite as well as they would, could. Um, but the other people, the other trade is um, uh, how you respond to carbon dioxide when you're asleep. So there are sort of four reasons. And one of the big lines of work that we've done, which is actually sort of when I entered the field to be considered malpractice is we actually have had success giving a sleeping pill to, uh, to people with sleep apnea. Now, this was really a scary concept. You know, here are people, they're going off to sleep, their airway, their throat's closing, oxygen levels are getting low, and you want to keep them asleep um, by giving them a pill. But because of the work that we've done, a third of people actually wake up too easily. 
we've studied very carefully, done clinical trials with certain drugs that we've now shown that they don't relax them. Some of them don't relax the muscles around the throat and you can actually stabilize the breathing by helping them get into deeper sleep if you give it to the right people. If you give it to the wrong ones, it does actually make them worse. So it's all about precision or personalized medicine. So it's been a, a really exciting time for for the field that we've now got these new uh, pathways for what is a you know a very common disorder and I guess just to expand on that a little bit is that you know the main treatment for sleep apnea uh, continuous positive airway pressure is involves just wearing a mask you put a mask on your nose blow air in uh, and it and it blows open the uh, uh, the throat air millions of people around the world benefit from this treatment developed here in Sydney in the early 80s by Colin Sullivan. Um, literally millions of people, companies have sprung up, ResMed um, uh, was, was formed from that discovery. So this really put sleep apnea or sleep medicine on the map. The problem is half the people that try that therapy can't tolerate it. Uh, and, or, and there's another group out there that aren't even willing to give it a go. So you know, that's why we do the work we do is to, to help all those other people that um, you know, can't tolerate the, the main therapy. So to summarise the four streams, you've got anatomy. Some people just wake up too much. What, what were the other two? The other two are your muscles around your throat area just aren't performing the way they, they need to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've never called it lazy muscles, but but, well, but, yeah. but yes. You I don't mean, need a doctorate to, yeah. uh, to, to you know, put that phrase on it. That's right. You know, the, the muscles around the throat aren't working the way they should to keep yep. the airway open when they're asleep. And, uh, and, so there's some, and again, there's some exciting work that we've done in that area. For, for, we don't have a drug to treat sleep apnea. We've just published a study to show that if you give this certain medicine that's already been available, we can actually increase the muscle activity around the throat that we hope will now help some people with sleep apnea. So that's an, another, just by understanding that uh, is one. But the fourth and final one is what we call uh, an unstable control of breathing. So when, when you're asleep, the way you breathe is just responding to how much carbon dioxide that you've got. You know, when we're awake, we've got all these other things. We can control our breathing by, you know, voluntarily. But when you're asleep, you rely on how much carbon dioxide uh, you've got. If, you, if you're too sensitive to just the small changes in carbon dioxide that we get when we wake up, this can contribute to your sleep apnea for another number of reasons. So, again, there's treatments that we can target in on, on that particular trait when we find it. And if you could just summarise, because I always find it fascinating, if you could just summarise a typical sleep cycle and what's yeah. involved, you, you said it before, it was a dynamic process, but what does that cycle look like? So it's a, it's a roughly 90-minute process. You go off to sleep, you go through what uh, three stages, so you have what's called stage one or light sleep, you then go off to two, and then you go off to three or slow wave sleep. That's that really deep sleep where the brain waves are highly synchronized. Um, you get these big os oscillations in brain waves, and that's where that sort of hormone release and the growth hormone is, is, is occurring. And then you go into dreaming sleep or, or rapid eye movement sleep. And, and as I mentioned, I mean, it's a fascinating stage of sleep. You, you look at your brain waves, it's as though they're awake, but your eyes are flickering, you know, at, kind of out of control. Uh, your muscles are, are virtually paralyzed, uh, and hence people with sleep apnea uh, gets much worse in dreaming sleep um, because of the the, the the huge amount of muscle relaxation, including the muscle uh, around the throat, and we, we've studied that quite carefully. And so then you repeat that cycle. Now, you tend to get a little bit more dreaming in the second half of the night, but roughly it's a 90-minute process that you go through. Okay, and I always find it ironic that people who 
espouse sleep hygiene and who know the benefits of sleep are the ones then who do these sleep studies and they've got the worst sleeping habits <laughs> going around. So yeah. I want you to provide us an insight. What do you do to measure these things, both with instruments and and also, you know, with, with your um, research uh, kind of protocols? I mean, so technology plays a big part of what we do and it always has. Um, and so, for example, in my team, I have several biomedical engineers um, that, that are very good on the equipment side and the technology, uh, as well as, you know, physiologists, scientists and doctors that, that contribute to the team. So the way we measure it is we have to put electrodes onto the scalp to measure, um, you know, whether people's electric, we measure the electrical activity of their brain. They come into to the lab. Uh, my lab's set up a bit like a hotel, so, we, you know, we try to make as comfortable as we can and then we do all sorts of things. We stick needles and wires into people's tongues and tubes down their throat and all sorts of things so we can do what we, we do to figure all this out. But um, that's, yeah, it's quite intense, the, the number of uh, electrodes. Uh, we put bands around the chest and the abdomen to measure breathing movements. We put, uh, like you could, you'd see in hospital with uh, those uh, specks around the, the nose to measure breathing. Um, you might see people getting oxygen through in the, in, in the hospital. Uh, and we stick things around the eyes and the chin to measure muscle activity. So it's a number of, of pieces of recording equipment. As technology's evolved, we're now shifting a lot of that, uh, at least in the simple form, out into the home. So we can now, this simplified technology where you can wear some of these devices uh, and make some, some pretty accurate recordings in the home. Yes, that's what I was going to ask about how do you rate consumer wearables? Yeah. Uh, Oh, you're chuckling because I'm constantly wearing, I'm always wearing something and I'm trying to measure my sleep and trying to make sense of it. Uh, does it actually, do these devices work? And um, what, are the, what are the key elements for a good home consumer device tracker or app? I, just tell me what one I should use, okay? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and look, this is, this is the thing we're all struggling with. I mean... My colleagues, that you know, the patients will come to them in clinic and they'll have, look, here, here you go, doc, here's all my, I've got it all right here, I've measured it all, have a look, how do you interpret this? And as, you know, as scientists and, and clinicians in, 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 in the roles that my colleagues have, you know, they, they've got to sit down and say, well, actually, we haven't studied every single device in detail and we don't know you know science takes time you know you've got to do things carefully come up with a question then a couple of years later two three four years you might find out the answer so you know with this boom of technology you know we measure and uh, some of them against the gold standard in the lab and how well they perform but you know answer your question these are predominantly accelerometers measuring movement and you know depending on the algorithm or the, the black box inside those they perform reasonably well at telling you whether you're awake or asleep um they're not perfect, um, but they give you a rough indication. All right, there's plenty more questions. Actually, I've got one. Um, I'm going to go on record here. Look, Danny is my cousin, and so there is a bit of nepotism here, but you did put me through one of your – it wasn't a sleep trial, but you brought me into the lab and you made me hypoxic, which was a horrible feeling. <laughs> what were you doing back then? What was, why, why make me dizzy? Or what does hypoxic mean? I, I completely forgot that I did that. That's right. You you were a participant in my PhD studies. That's I remember right. now. And and so because, you know, when you're not breathing enough with your sleep apnea, your oxygen levels are going down, it is. It's like going to altitude or um, 
you know, not getting it, not getting enough oxygen to your brain. And you described it well. I mean, it, it, it can feel a bit euphoric or you can feel a bit like you, you, you're drunk. Um, and, and we were trying to simulate that experience that goes on every night, every single night for people with sleep apnea. And we were trying to see what it does to the reflexes around your throat and, uh, you know, whether the hypoxia in itself could actually be making your sleep apnea worse. Danny told me I, I won. <laughs> I won the test. And, and I'll tell you another thing. He put me into this thing and, he, and the only thing that I took out of this whole day, and I felt terrible for most of the day, but he said I had 120% capa- lung capacity as opposed to the average person. And I still tell my wife that now, actually. <laughs> Should we just start interviewing you now, mate? How, how good you are? Because that's generally how these podcasts no, seem no. to go. Okay, but it's a, no, I, I did that for a reason because yeah. it's the perfect segue now to, look, you, you've grown up an Adelaide boy. You know, and we're quite parochial, uh, you know, Adelaide people here on Rooster Radio. How does, how do you get to a point where you end up at Harvard by the age of... Twelve and a half. Twelve and a half. You know, in your, in your late 20s, early 30s, um, you're, a, you, you've got, you're, a doc, you're a doctor by the age of 30... I've done my research here. So. <laughs> Look, yeah, I'm, I moved to... I so, moved, we'll go yeah. back, go back. So how do you... I think we should just let maybe him tell his own backstory because no, you're battling him. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at high school at Maryville High School in South Australia. What happens? Look, I, I wanted to be a, a cyclist. That's what I wanted to do. I, uh, um, when I was at high school, I was um, racing the national mountain bike cir- circuit and my year 12, I did the world championship mountain biking uh, uh, race. So I, I was travelling a lot for my year 12 studies. I didn't, never thought I'd be, as you said, going overseas, places like Harvard and coming back here and running a, a research lab as a scientist. I didn't, you know, I did. I had what to... Happened? Yeah, what happened? So I, you know, I kept... After my high school, I took a year off and I, I tried to race my bike full time. But unlike my cousin over here, I, who I should point out is my younger cousin. He's always trying to compete with me, you see. <laughs> and... and uh, but, you know, I didn't have 120% lung capacity. And, and, you do uh, you look know. 10 years younger than him, by the way. Uh, it's because you're so well rested and, and he's grey and tired. I'll get onto his looks in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, realistically, so that's, you know, I, I gave it a crack for a year and, and um, worked part-time at an apple orchard, an organic apple orchard up in the, up in the Adelaide Hills, the glorious Adelaide Hills. Um, would ride up there some mornings before before work and and i and i raced and um and i also deferred my university so i you know i didn't quite know what i wanted to do as many people don't when they leave high school and i enrolled in exercise or or sports science as it was at the time and uh and i deferred it for a year while i gave a, a crack at this this cycling business and um look you know a few i i realized that um you know it was uh too hard, basically. <laughs> but it did. It set me up. It, it set me up for everything I do now. It was a great foundation. Um, and you know, realistically, I was never gonna, never gonna win the Tour de France with my physiology. And you know, if I was lucky, I could have been a domestique if I worked very hard. And uh, um, and I had a few other things that happened in my life. You know, uh, personally, my mum got sick and uh, ended up passing away quite young. And and so I, you know, I had these other life-changing events that I realised there's more to riding, you know, to life than, than riding a push bike. So, but nonetheless, you know, I went to university, I did sports science, loved every minute of it, 
and um, you know I was still racing then you know and uh, was in a great team and we'd go away and do some of these big tours and the Sun Tour and the Tour of Tasmania and Tour of New Caledonia we did these fantastic races and uh, while whilst I was studying I also had a landscape gardening business while I was doing that as well I was, I was busy and uh, and then you know after university that's that's actually when my you know, my mum got sick when I got this job at the... Well, actually, I should probably take a step back because I had a job lined up at the Sports Institute, the South Australian Sports Institute, as an exercise physiologist. They gave out one spot a year and I was going to do my honours study there and I, I was all signed up to do that uh, and was looking forward to it. But, you know, as you do when you finish university, I applied for many jobs. <laughs> no, maybe. But... but um, <laughs> You know, I, um, I I always had an interest in, in, in the medical field and uh, I applied for jobs at hospitals, you know, much, as much as anything to practice, interview, you know, just go through the process and try and figure out what I was doing. But anyway, I, I can go on about that. No, no, and we are going to go yeah. on about um, that. If you don't mind, in a, what were the impacts of, of your mum passing away? I mean, how did that cause you to reflect on your path and, and, and what did that mean for what you wanted to achieve look i mean my mum in uh was a great inspiration to me she was an incredible woman she um was uh an academic but also uh she was in education was a principal and always went to and then later in her career a, a consultant so she and i were very close you know she was um she worked in a in a lot of challenging and dis, you know disadvantaged schools and so i i guess i got a strong social conscience from my mum and and you know i was when mum got sick i'd had i'd been working in the hospital for a year as a, as a research assistant uh in this sleep and uh at the repat they're closing it on us but um mm. but that's that's where i did my training and um but then I decided there were such good people that I decided I want to go and do my study at the Repat. Um, and so I did my honours year. And that's, you know, mum was mum got sick when I was about 18. And uh, so that, this was going on throughout that whole time. And then, you know, it, as these things do, it got to a point where it was clear that this was not going to get any better. And so, you know, I was looking after my mum and taking care of her and giving her all her medicines and then going off and doing my, my honours study at the hospital. And I guess, you know... I was, you know, I was trying to race my bike before that too. And I guess when all this, this, you know, happened, you realise that, yeah, like I said, I mean, there's more to life than than, Perspective. than, than uh, riding a push bike. Although, you know, I still love live watching cycling. But uh, yeah. okay, so to continue on your story, where were we? We're at um, Sassy. Decided not to take that opportunity. Was that right? Look, that's right. And it was hard. I had this weekend. This was when my mum was was still alive and. You know, and, and she helped me write these applications for these, these jobs mm. at the hospital. And I remember I got the call up on a Thursday afternoon. I was, it was 42 degrees. I was up in the Adelaide Hills digging holes in my landscaping before I started my new job at the Sports Institute on the Monday. And uh, they rang and said, you know, can you come in to do this interview tomorrow at the hospital, the repat? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. And I got there and I, I didn't, I, you know, it's a rabbit wire in that place. I got lost. Yeah. I was late. But because I was doing it to sort of practice interviewing, uh, you know, I, was, I guess more relaxed than I was otherwise might have been. And they were good people. And, and, and you, know, we, and, you know, long story short, they offered me this job. So on a Friday night, I was there to do to start at Sassy on Monday, offered this job at the hospital. For me, it was a life-changing mm. moment. You know, it was like I had this weekend and I was down at my mum's house down at North Haven and, uh 
I was just going around in circles trying to work out, am I going to be an exercise physiologist? Am I going to give this hospital gig a, a go? And, I, you know, by Monday morning, I still didn't know what I was going to do. And I uh, arrived at Underdale at Sassy there and uh, to start my new job. And, um, uh, and I told my new boss that... Uh, I've been offered this another job. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Can I take a quick walk along the uh, the Torrens there to figure it out? And uh, and I went. I actually went to uni, which was at Underdale at the time, and spoke to some of my lecturers. And they said, "Look, this is you know we're sports science people. You're going to take this job at the hospital. This is a great job." And uh, so I went back and told my new boss, "Look, I'm very sorry, but I'm uh, I'm going to give this hospital thing a go." And um, uh, never looked back, really. Yeah. So. How then did you move from a were you you know beginning to work at the hospital and and you so I guess learning the ropes in in that sense how how did you then separate yourself um, to a point where you're going to be a candidate here to go to Harvard and and how does that happen Yeah, look, I, I, I guess you know my, it turned out my training was actually perfect um you know when you're pushing your body as hard as you possibly can uh in exercise which is you know what i was passionate about uh and i did the theory of that in in the sports science um was when your body and the system is most vulnerable Uh, and the opposite is also true when you're sleeping and the body is at its quietest is also when your body is is most vulnerable and interesting so a lot of the physiology that i learned you know, in my, in my uh, exercise physiology actually translated perfectly into the, to the sleep and breathing job that I, that I took at the hospital. And look, my, my, my connection to go, to go to Boston came from my PhD, one of my PhD supervisors, Doug McAvoy, who set up the sleep uh, group at the, at the REPAT there, the Adelaide Institute of Sleep Health, for Sleep Health. And he uh, had a connection. He went over to Denver and, 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 and uh, spent some time with my um, future boss in, at Harvard, who set up the Harvard lab, and yeah, he was living at Denver at time, and then he and, and then he moved to uh, to Harvard. So he, it was my boss's contact that really um, established the relationship for me. And uh, I met him at a conference, and um, I went over and gave a talk actually, and, and spent a couple of weeks there. I got this uh, scholarship to go and spend a, a few weeks over at over at Harvard and uh, met the team and uh, just thought, wow, this is, this is an incredible place. And again, I had to apply for my funding. So I, uh, you know, I competed for a thoracic society grant and was awarded a, a two-year grant to go over there and, um, and later an, a, a National Health and Medical Research Council fellowship. So during my, I mean, I also got grants while I was over there, but a lot of my funding actually came from Australia to go uh, and, and be, at, be at Harvard. If you took one step back, though, um, I've always wanted this about sort of, you know, PhD and, and, and research. Do you pick a field where there's obvious uh, room to do some great work or do you, do you follow the things that you're passionate about and just see where that takes you? So where, where did, how did sleep apnea come about as a, as a field? I mean, I, I went to that job interview at the Repat knowing nothing about sleep, you know, and I said that. I said, you know, <laughs> I don't know anything, but, I, you know, I'm willing to learn. And, and for me, what, so, so for me, I stumbled upon it, you know. I didn't think I was going to be a sleep researcher. Um, but I, it, the people got me interested in it. And, and I was surrounded by people who generally, you know, were passionate about what they did. You know, Doug McAvoy, Peter Catcherside, my my mentors um, there at the Repat 
just created an environment that was just ideal for learning and, and, and sinking your teeth into this, this new topic. And I just found it fascinating. You know, I mean, sleep affects every part of the body. So it was for me, you know, someone that was interested in, you know, how the, how the body works, it was, um, it unlocked this whole new, new area. And I, and I soon realized that, you know, it was lucky because, you know, some areas of medicine are a bit stale, but sleep medicine is, is, is really evolves, um, you know, since that discovery of, CPAP by Colin Sullivan in, in Sydney um, in the early 80s. It's, it's, it's blossomed into this, this uh, new discipline in, in medicine and it's, you know, it is an exciting uh, dynamic area to be in. And uh, so, so for me, I was lucky. But, but yeah, it was, it was something that I then, because I was around good people, they motivated me to get into it. I sucked my teeth into it. And, and you know, as I progressed along the way, yeah, I became extremely passionate about it, as you can probably tell. And um, the more I learn about it, the more I want to know. And uh, that's what's kept me going, really. Harvard has this prestige, has this aura. What's it really like? And can you tell us perhaps why, why it is what it is? I mean, it's everything you hear plus some. You know, it, it was an incredible experience to be at a place like that where you've got people from all over the world that that come into this town boston to solve the problems of the world you know that's 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 what they're there it's it's an international hub and we're at the hospital that i was at the brigham and women's hospital surrounded by all these other hospitals and um you know people would commute there every day to to come and fix these big problems and uh, it's it's in every sense. I mean, you've just got. I could walk down the corridor, and there's the world's expert at this part. You know, it might be uh, you know cancer, or it might be you know figuring out why your hand moves the way it does. You know, I mean, this is where they are. So, this was you know, this was the place. And um, you know, I'd, I'd be at a dinner party, and I would literally be around the table with a dozen incredible people, including a rocket scientist. You know, I went to dinner with a rocket scientist. This is this is this is what I did. So it was incredibly stimulating and and uh, you know motivating place to be. It was uh, it was incredible. Yeah, about a year or so ago I got to spend a day uh, at Harvard, had a couple of meetings there and at MIT and it was phenomenal because I was the dumbest guy in that area by an absolute mile. <laughs> and, and, and as you said, it's the world's best, the yeah. world's brightest minds doing mm-hmm. the most innovative, game-changing stuff all in this one precinct. Yeah. Uh, James, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't understand, but discuss. I'd just like to talk about the time Danny and I went toe-to-toe <laughs> together at Underdale because we did actually start our sports science degrees together and I think one's blossomed and the other's <laughs> stagnated a little bit but anyway <laughs> I, I just remember you you just found out that you'd been drafted to St Kilda and I was walking into my anatomy uh exam and you you walked my mum is gonna kill me <laughs> <laughs> and you walked into the into the exam and said uh, our our lecturer was called I can't remember his nickname was Modra but um it, it wasn't the Tony Modra but we um you just said, look, nothing against you, Mods, but I, I haven't learned anything for this. I, I am, I'm, I'm not going to stay. <laughs> and off you went. The bloke hasn't changed. He's still this smug little arrogant underdale kid. Anyway, back to the science. Um, there was a question there. I can't remember. Yeah. No, so, okay, we're, talk, we're, we're talking about all the amazing things that Harvard has to offer and the prestige and, and what it looks like on your CV, but also what it means for progressing your science. How then do you end up back in Australia? 
look, it was it was a hard choice. I was I was lucky. I mean, the real reason I went to Boston was to meet my wife Layla, <laughs> uh, who I met you know a few months after I moved there. She was uh, studying uh, at the Ed School at Harvard and and doing a doctorate and. Um, you know, she'd, she'd just finished her doctorate. I mean, we, we were close to staying there. I was a, an assistant professor at, at, at Harvard. And, um, you know, there are incredible opportunities of being in a place like that that you will not get elsewhere just because you're in that place. Uh, I mean, there's certain challenges in being in a big machine and a bureaucracy like that. But there's no doubt that it's, a, you know, it's a game changer. It opens doors that otherwise would not be open. So we were close. We're looking at houses. We're thinking about staying there. But at the end of the day, I'm an Australian. Um, my wife is not. She's French. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm an Australian. And, and if I've got the opportunity to make my contribution in Australia, then that's what I wanted to do. And, um, an and, and you know, we, we were uh, having, you know, decided to have a family. And, um, you know, quality of life-wise, um, Australia has a lot to offer. So there was a lot, you know, obviously I moved back to Sydney, Sydney and not Adelaide. Um, but you know that that you know I'm closer to my family and and lifestyle wise with kids and you know this fantastic opportunity came came up to uh, work with someone I, I really respect um, the founder of one of the co-founders of neuroscience Professor Simon Gandivia is just an incredible human being and scientist and you know when I was looking around thinking you know where is my next move yes we could stay here and that would be a, a great great. Um, uh, opportunity to stay in Boston, but when I was looking around, I thought, right, who do who do I respect and who do I want to learn from all around the world? And I did. I looked in Europe and I looked in other, I interviewed in other places in America. So this is not something that I chose lightly. But this one guy, Simon Gandivia, I just thought, is you know, he's a, he's a neurologist, but he's also a respiratory uh, scientist and and just a, a really uh, an inspiration. And and so I I thought, right. At my stage of my career, I want to learn from this guy. They didn't have a sleep program uh, at Neura, uh, but they wanted one. And so, and you know, it was a great opportunity to come and, and, and set up and get into new avenues because now I collaborate with other neuroscientists and it's opened all these new doors. And um, it's been a fantastic move. It's really um, been great. Uh, you seem to have compressed, you know, a, a life's work and you're 37 years of age now and I want to know if there's been any kind of pushback or you get any resistance being sort of a bit young, energetic, uh, you're, you're ambitious in a world where there's probably a lot of people who've sort of been in the same type of positions for a few years and there's a lot of egos and personalities. Have you found there's natural tension that exists? Look, um, you know, one of the advantages of being in a relatively new field of medicine, in, in, in sleep medicine, is it is much more collegial and um, uh, fresh, if you like. It is more dynamic than some of the, and I won't use the word stale, but, you know, some other areas of medicine are more more so like that. And I'm not saying there's not some of that in sleep, but, the, but you know, I think I, I've been well supported by my field. We've got a very collegial field in Australia. Um, you know, yes, it's a little more competitive uh, in the States, but... You know, I've just been fortunate to be around great people. And, you know, at the end of the day, we are here to fix a, a common problem. And, um, you know, I've had great support from, you know, all, all folks around, around the planet to help me, me do my work. And I collaborate with a lot of people around the planet um, to move, move, move the course forward. So, you know, I, I haven't had much kickback on sort of moving my things forward, you know, particularly um, because of, of doing what we do. You know, at the end of the day, we're trying to help people. So... Uh, um, yeah, we've 
Early on, we spoke about some of the uh, health issues that arise from sleep apnea and just a lack of sleep in general. If we flip it the other way, can we talk about the high performance benefits that great sleep hygiene and and great sleep habits bring about? Mm. High performers might be listening. Um, myself, I would love some sleep tips. James and I are yeah. constantly chuckling about my constant battles with sleep. But if I'm a high performer and I want to get um, the most out of myself, first of all, can, is there any data to say that someone with a great uh, sleep hygiene or sleep habits, is there any sort of data to say how much, like what advantages they have? Yeah. Look, there are, and it, it depends on. I mean, I, I guess the first thing I'd say is this idea of of thinking that somehow, yes, we're all busy, we've got all these things to do. Thinking that you can squish sleep uh, and and take that out of the equation and still perform at your best is is a fallacy. I mean, we know that so clearly from everything, both in terms of your your exercise performance, you know, if you do a VO2 max test or you do an endurance test, if you're not getting enough sleep, you perform worse. I mean, that's that's just it's straight up how it is. Um, your ability to think, all these other things. So my the head of the division that I worked at in at the hospital in, in, in Boston, um, sorry, the head of yeah, sleep medicine, a guy called Chuck Seisler, consults for a lot of the, the world's best sporting teams and he credits the the stanley cup win when uh, uh he was consulting for the boston breweries the ice hockey team to basically him telling the, the team to go and go and take a nap you know to 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 prioritize sleep instead of doing another training session he told the the team when they're flying out to vancouver to not do that and because because actually remembering all your learning and memory and this is a seven series thing you are picking up and learning subtle things about your opponents in each game, you know. Um, and so rather than push another session, um, he said, no, take, cut that out, get some sleep. You know, obviously there's a small jet lag component in that in that travel as well. He optimised all those facets based on the science, you know, got sleep and they won the cup, you know. So, so yeah, you're, you're thinking about that way. Not only does it perform, improve your actual performance uh, physically, but your ability to think and learn from your opponents and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, optimise your performance in that way has a big effect as well. Okay, so on a real practical level, what would be a sleep program that you might assign for someone, say, in business yeah. who, who, who wants the edge? Yeah. What should they be doing? Yeah, and, and I gave a talk once to the McKinsey consultants and you can imagine they were on the edge of every, you know, they wanted numbers on every single thing. Which app is the best? How do I do this? A lot of them flying from yeah. Sydney to Perth on the regular. What I will say is that, um, you know, sleep is a behavioural thing. Um, you, for an adult, you should be optimising, you know, seven or eight hours a night. Just prioritise it. Put it up there. Um, see how it affects your, you know, your, your performance. Um it seems to be more crucial standardising the t- time at which you wake more so than, than going to bed at the same time. I mean, you, you can do a little bit of tweaking on the front end within that seven or eight hours, but if you are getting seven or eight hours consistently um, with a regular wake-up time, that's how you optimise your, your sleep. And, yeah, if you've got a sleep disorder, as many of us do, um, fortunately we've got you know great, great people to help in this country. Um, 
got great sort of sleep physicians and, and sleep sleep doctors. Um, so, you know, if you do have a, a, an actual sleep disorder, whether it be insomnia or you're worried that you might be uh, snoring or have some sleep apnea, then go do something about it and then, you know, start reaping the rewards. It's, uh, it really is, you know, there's so many distractions. Being on these, get rid of the devices, put them down, you know, an hour or two before. Make sure you're sleeping in a dark room. Get mm. out all the distractions. Just do it. Don't watch that crap TV. Just turn it off. Go well, to bed. Well, tell us a little bit more than about devices in particular because that's yeah. going to be a major issue for most people. Yeah, look, it is. And and so what, what happens? Now, some of the... Um, you know, some of the science is starting to be incorporated in some of these devices because, you know, I, I know as much as everyone, I'm as, you know, I'm as addicted as the next person to these devices. But we know that, you know, it's worse than TV because these things are, are up near your eyes. You're looking at them very close. They're emitting blue light. That changes um, an area in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and that resets your body clock. So if you are emitting this blue light, that is telling your brain, it's releasing uh, hormones to say, stay awake, reset my body clock, let's flip it, let's, let's stay awake here, I need to be alert. So this is the opposite of what you want to do um, when, you, when you're going off to sleep. Now, some of the devices have got a little bit smarter than this, so you can put settings on there to emit red light more so than the blue light. And that, you know, that helps to some extent. Um, but the best thing you can do is, you know, put that device away, just put it away an hour or two before you go to bed. You know, same applies to computer and the other things that you're working on. Um, just, you know, take that time out uh, in the evening to, uh, to get into a good, good routine. One of the last questions I've got before rapid fire, just a little bit of warning there, Andrew, <laughs> just pre-warning you that rapid fire is okay. coming up. Um, how do people recognise the signs potentially of having sleep apnea as opposed to, say, my wife, who, who self-diagnosed sleep apnea <laughs> every morning she gets up because she's a bit tired? What's the difference and, and how do you recognise that you might be a candidate Look, the easiest way and, and the most common way is the bed partner uh, witnessing their partner stop breathing. You know, that's that's terrifying for the partner. Um, so you might you might have been told that you snore loudly or they've witnessed you stop breathing. So that, that's the most common. But if, you know, obviously we not all of us have, have bed partners. So uh, the other ways are, yeah, chronically tired. Um, and, um, you know, it's not just once or twice I'm a little bit tired but it's this constant you know tiredness you might have headaches in the morning um, these are some of the the things that um, uh, you know a telltale signs of, of of sleep apnea remembering the disorder affects everyone differently but um, these are some of the the things and um, you know yeah if, if you're concerned talk to your doctor about it sorry another question um, coffee and alcohol how does that play with sleep apnea yeah uh, so Actually, the most fun study I ever did was with alcohol, and it was at the repat. Um, we we bought young, healthy people into the lab and gave them three or four shots of vodka. <laughs> I mean, this was important science, and we um, we measured what it did. I mean, long story short, it blocks your nose. Um, so that's why you start snoring, and you, and 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 it gives you gives you apneas. Um, Potentially, if you've already got a little bit of vulnerability in your throat, in this shape and size of your throat area in the back of your nose, blocking that nose and not getting enough air through can cause snoring and sleep apnea. So that was that was one on the alcohol side. Caffeine is is what we call an, an adenosine antagonist. So throughout the day, you're building up adenosine, uh, and you're a, you know a transmitter. Um, 
and and caffeine takes that away. So if you are having, you know, we recommend not having any caffeine, you know, after, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon um, because, you know, that adenosine is building up and that's that's one of the natural cues that you need to send you off to sleep. So if you're taking caffeine, you know, right before going to bed, then again, you're just fighting against this natural natural pattern. Now, some people actually have a what we call a polymorphism in their in their genetic makeup that where they don't have such an, uh, a stimulatory effect from their caffeine, but unless you know that's you, then uh, you know the best advice is to stay away from it. Okay, so on to rapid fire questions, and it's gonna. We always give the context that our rapid fire questions are poorly thought out in that we do no preparation and we always spring it on each other. Oh yeah, rapid fire, and then we just make it up as we go along. However, this is different because all of my rapid fire questions are going to be related to my own life, <laughs> and all going to be for me to get tips about how I can sleep better. First one is uh, one that's close to James and my heart in that we are currently sharing a $30 Airbnb here in Sydney <laughs> and we are in a lounge room, two single I, beds. I'm charging you 45 aren't I? <laughs> yeah. No, okay. We've got two single 30. beds next to each other and then last night I pulled out um, my phone and it had, um, I've got an app and it's got ambient noise and James almost fell off his uh, dodgy bed and said, what, what are you cranking that up? And so I've got this ambient noise. Yeah. Am I, am I an idiot? Does it actually work? No, no, no. <laughs> My question's long. His, question, his answer's hopefully going to be short and succinct. Yes, your app is worth it. If it works, go for it. Okay. <laughs> Has anyone ever told you you look like Lucas Neal before? Don't know who that is. <laughs> Children. Okay. Now I'm going to try and keep this short, but... Give me one tip then. One tip if I have a, a child who is continuing to get out of bed and and wake us up. Stern conversation. <laughs> Consider locking door. <laughs> um, what's been – which year would you say has been the hardest year you've had in your – scientist journey wow i gotta do this rapid fire um i'd have to say my honors year the year my mum passed away and you know it's a it's a hard year of training anyway you've got to go from being an undergrad to doing something that's publishable in a in a top journal that was that was a tough year dot point form but your own preparation before you go to sleep i am an excellent sleeper so I, I really... He doesn't drink coffee, he doesn't drink much alcohol, and he doesn't eat chocolate. I mean, I'd, I'd rather be asleep than awake too. <laughs> That's true. I don't do those things. So, uh, yeah, look, I I'm fortunate. I, I rarely have trouble, unless, you know, I've got a lot going on in my mind, but I, I rarely have trouble sleeping. So I go to bed and I head hits the pillar and that's it. Scientists that, that you respect and why? So, I mean, I've been fortunate personally to have those great mentions, mentors that I meant, mentioned, you know, Doug McAvoy, Peter Catcherside, Simon Gandivi here in Sydney and David White in, in Boston. So they're, in my field, um, people that I really, really look up to. But, you know, I also look up to those other Australians who are, you know, people like Peter Doherty and other Nobel laureates that, you know, from Australia that, uh, you know, have been able to, to make their mark on the world uh, uh, doing their science. If you weren't in the field of sleep, what field would you love to be in? 
rock and roll. I like to be on the stage. I can't. I got no musical talents, but I would really like to be. <laughs> I would really like to be able to sing or do something performing or artistic. I think. Yeah. Um, does Australia punch above its weight with research and science in general? No doubt, and in particular in, in breathing and, and sleep. We are, you know, I mentioned the pioneering discoveries here in Australia, and uh, we absolutely do. I'm proud of that. <laughs> yeah. Your earliest memory of my co host, James. Oh, dear. Can I, can I say this on a podcast radio yes, session? You can say anything you want. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, constantly nude and uh, basin haircut. He just. I think your son currently has some of those attributes, actually. <laughs> We're continuing He's the family constantly tradition. constantly nude, that kid. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's it? I mean, I can go on, but they, they, were, the, they were the things that kind of stuck with me. You know, we'd... I think that's plenty. <laughs> Was he born with as much grey hair as he's got now? I, actually, I hadn't seen him for a few months. I, I actually thought there was uh, some, some dye in the beard there, but that, that's real. Yeah. yeah afraid not. Yeah. Um, if you have one vice or one thing that you do that probably doesn't fit with your kind of day job um, that people might not uh, pick about you, what would your vice or the thing that you like to do be? Oh gosh, that's a hard, I'm a pretty serious guy. I think about this sleep business all the time. Um, oh look, I, I'm going to have to get back here on that one. I'm, I'm, I'm a I'm I'm a very focused, disciplined scientist here. I, all I do is think about sleep. But you know, you, you know the other things I like. I uh, I mentioned the music Jesus. stuff. I like <laughs> I like going up, get, staying out late, listening to music. Yeah. As we sit here in your lounge room and look around at the lovely prints on your walls, uh, tell us a little bit, a bit about your taste in art. Uh, this is largely inspired by my wife. This, these pieces here, these etchings, are from um, uh, an artist in Normandy in France, which is where my wife has uh, parents have, have a place. Um, and he was at our French wedding, um, so we have three of these pieces. There's some uh, some old, really old school maps here from you know several hundred years old. Uh, we've got a few of those wow. around the place. Uh, this one is actually also from Normandy, from from the region where Layla grew up. And it turns out they um, uh, they don't. Uh, in the olden days, they didn't actually go and map out all the area. They would actually the artists would actually sort of copy previous people's maps and you know so there's a bit of bit of uh bit of uh you know making it up as you go along so that that one is is interesting and then we've got this uh this side over here where i won't go into too much detail but this is a little more edgy on this side and uh, a famous south australian uh artist uh, barbara hanrahan we've got uh, a piece called three ladies here on one side which is uh one that I kind of like as well. There's, there is a reason why I've been thrown um, with some of my questioning tonight. I've been a little bit distracted, to be honest. But anyway. <laughs> That's right. You guys are looking at the main piece. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Danny, look, thank you for taking the time out to speak to a couple of Adelaide boys. And, and as one Adelaide boy who's gone on to the international stage and, and well and truly put yourself and put uh, Australian science on the map, 
um, thank you. And I'm incredibly proud and I go around telling everyone that you're my cousin. So As I'll, do I. I've really appreciated, you know, properly mapping out your story and, and the, some of the detail behind your science and um, really appreciate it, mate. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our interview with Dr. Danny Eckert. Find out more about the work of Danny's team at www.neura.edu.au. Connect with Rooster Radio at roosterradio.biz. That's where you can sign up to our mailing list and you can also join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roosterradiohq. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.